0: Welcome to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, a podcast about those life-altering experiences that shape who we are today and those times when we were not totally fine. I'm your host, Tiffany Philippou, and I've written a memoir, Totally Fine and Other Lies I've Told Myself. Each episode, I'm joined by a guest who'll tell me their story about a time that they pretended to be totally fine. I know what it's like to pretend to be okay, and that's what my book is about. After my boyfriend, Richard, died by suicide, I spent most of my twenties pretending that this never happened. I know that it's not just what happens to us, but the stigma we feel and how we suppress it that's the real problem. So here's why we're having these conversations, to quiet the shame monster and to remind us that we're not alone.
1: Kinda knew I was gay, but couldn't go with the deputy head boy in my arm, which is what I wanted to do. But <laughs> Stockport wasn't ready for that, so it was a cream tuxedo. It was the next best thing. That was my that was my signal to the world that you know I was I was coming out. I guess.
0: Like with me, this this experience that f- for a long time you hid from has actually become. It doesn't. Our experiences don't define us, but they've become a really key part of our work.
1: When I made the show in 2018, I had no idea that I would be performing it, on, you know, a hundred times to thousands of people, you know, sitting on the BBC breakfast couch and talking about, you know, doing all these incredible things. And I'm so honoured to, to have this platform. It's a real privilege. I think one of the things I said to myself was that I had to speak this truth into the universe
0: Today I'm joined by Nathaniel J. Hall. Nathaniel is a theatre maker, writer, performer, producer and HIV activist from Manchester. He also played Donald Bassett in the Channel 4 show It's a Sin, which was a Russell T Davies drama about HIV and AIDS in the 1980s. Nathaniel also has a solo show, First Time, which is about his experience of being diagnosed with HIV. Nathaniel has said, I try and use my platform wherever I can, to remind people that there are other people, women, heterosexual men, that live with HIV and maybe are struggling to be open about that. And actually, what we need to do as a society is make them feel comfortable enough to step forward and say it, and say it openly and loud and proud if they want to. Welcome to the show, Nathaniel. Hello, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm all right, I'm okay, how are you?
1: Yeah, I'm very good. I'm very good. I'm feeling um, I'm feeling refreshed. I've been for a swim this morning, uh, which is good. I've just been on tour with my show since since about October, so on and off, so for quite a long time with no routine, and I really love my routine. And I went for a swim for the first time this morning, and it felt so good. So I'm really excited about getting back into my routine.
0: Oh, amazing! So you back home now?
1: I am. Yeah, I'm back home. For for who knows how long as an actor, you know, any moment you can be whisked away to somewhere else. So yeah, I'm going to enjoy it while I can.
0: Brilliant. And then, yeah, you've just performed, was it the 100th and last show of First Time the other week? Congratulations. And also, how does that feel?
1: Um, I'm not quite sure. I've processed it yet. Um, I've been living this story first time, which is you know my story of, of growing up with HIV. You know, I was what, since diagnosis age 16, and I've been I made the show in well started to make the show in 2017. It was premiered in 2018, and it's basically been my life mostly since then so um I feel like I've like lost a child or something at the minute like like I've let them out into the world (laughs) to to do their own thing and um so yeah I've had a week I'm sort of kind of processing that and getting getting my my energy together to start something new um so yeah it's it's bittersweet because obviously it's had incredible success which has been um really really uh humbling for me but yeah it's it's a, a funny old feeling at the minute
0: and It's a Sin also captured the hearts of the nation, as well as being obviously incredibly heart-wrenching and emotional at the same time. But what I, I think what I loved about It's a Sin, but also something I've noticed from looking at your work, is there something joyful as well about your work? And I was curious about, is that something intentional?
1: Well, well, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm quite a joyful person, so so it kind of naturally comes into into my work. I always say that there, there is hope and humour even in the darkest of places. And in my show, first time, and um, you know, so I I lived with HIV for 15 years in relative secret secrecy and silence. I didn't tell very many people. Um, I sort of just got on with things, and I didn't realise the psychological impact the the diagnosis and, and living in, in that secrecy and that shame was having on me and my life. Um but when I said making first time, you know, even people say, you know, they see, they've watched the show or and you read reviews and they're like, there's even humour, you know, like in the bit that you think is not gonna be funny at all. Um and that's not necessarily intentional on my part. But I think humour is a great way to is to connect and as a writer and as a theater maker as well it helps it helps an audience relax for sure um but I I think sometimes I maybe use uh, <laughs> those things maybe sometimes inappropriately but it's a coping mechanism isn't it and and it can help and um, I was watching one of my favorite films actually yesterday steel Magnolias and there's a great scene in that at the funeral where um where it's, where she uh, is absolutely distraught obviously at the, the death of her daughter And it's getting really, really serious and upset. Uh, And then someone breaks that, you know, that with absolute humour and says, we've been too serious for too long. We need to have a laugh. Um, So yeah, it it, it is kind of, for me, the only way to tell stories. Um, And I think, you know, I always want my audiences to feel uplifted and hopeful as well, um, if we're going to go to those difficult and dark places.
0: That's something I definitely relate to in my book. There are some moments where, yeah, during dark times, we're kind of still making some jokes or seeing some humor. And yeah, it's a coping mechanism. But as you say, it's actually the reality of the range of human experience, even in the darkest of times.
1: Yeah I mean my you know one of the one of my favourite lines in my show is so the the day after I after 15 years I told my family that I was HIV positive I wrote them all a letter I sent it out to my my two brothers and my sister and my mum and dad and my mum came my mum turned up on the doorstep the next day with a house plant as a gift and I was like what have you bought a house plant for she was like I don't know I was wandering around Tesco you know looking for a gift of what you buy your son when he told you that I was like you don't buy him anything but it was just this slightly surreal moment um and that always gets a laugh even though at that point in the show we've kind of been on this huge emotional roller coast so it really has like um uh, and and that's just this moment where people go oh yeah you know we're allowed to laugh and find humor in this
0: and um for those of us who've missed your show the play text is available on your website to buy and there's money towards that going to charity that's right
1: Yes, there is. Yeah. So, okay, so the show does live on, does live on in the play text.
0: <laughs> okay, fab. And we'll put the we'll put it in the show notes for anyone who wants to get access to that. Um, but yeah, so let's should we get into your story and delve into your experience? Today? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay, great. So the question is, tell us what was the experience that changed you?
1: Well, <laughs> The experience that, that changed me and changed the course of my life, um, uh, you know, irrevocably was when I was 16. I was diagnosed um, as HIV positive um, after my first sexual experience. So, if we go back to 2003, uh, it doesn't feel that long ago to me, but it is actually, it's actually like over 18 years ago or nearly 18 years ago. Um, and um, for context, I would say this: uh, Pop Idol. Was a big thing in 2002 will young had just won pop idol um, and you know i was uh growing up in stockport uh you know i'm from a, a relatively uh middle class family i was head boy at my school i was a straight a student but i knew inside that there was something different about me and, and at age 16 i was starting to understand that and realize that it was that i was attracted to to two other men. Um, but I talk about you know, 2003 being a really quite a homophobic time. And it was, that was the year that Section 28, which was the law, the legislation that stopped schools even talking about homosexuality was repealed. So I'd grown up, I was a Section 28 baby. You know, I'd been in school for that entire duration. Um, and then there wasn't really the representation of gay people on television and in music and film in the way that we sort of see today. And I, I I single out Will Young because you know that was a big thing you know Will Young w- winning Pop Idol and then you know the result h- him coming out um a few months after that, um and that was all part of my my coming out kind of experience and journey and I was I was sixteen um, I met a guy on a bench in Stockport I was actually waiting for the the uh, I was it was my prom and I was waiting for the uh, blazer not the blazer what do you call it the tuxedo that's the word I'm looking for the tuxedo for my prom and I was head boy at my school kind of knew I was gay but couldn't go with the deputy head boy on my arm which is what I wanted to do but <laughs> Stockport wasn't ready for that so it was a cream tuxedo was the next best thing that was my that was my signal to the world that you know I was I was coming out I guess in a sense um, and it was delayed at the at the higher shop so I'd sat on this bench waiting I know that's where I met this guy who was um, who started chatting to me, he was older than me, he was probably about 10 years older than me, but he looked a little bit like Will Young, and that's the significance of Will Young in this story. And we got chatting, and he was really nice, and we, we you know, we eventually shared numbers. And we started on, we started seeing one another, and that was my, that was my rite of passage into the gay world with this this guy who was um, older than me and at that time not uncommon and, and sometimes still not today actually for, for young gay men to you know maybe date an older gay guy and it was it was a summer romance it was you know it, it was it was great it was I went to Canal Street in Manchester you know I did all the new things I was kind of uh, burgeoning and blossoming in my sexuality and um, and we came to the crunch we came to you know having sort of the gay holy grail and 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 we I remember we were in his in his bedroom and he pulled out the safer sex pack which you can get in bars around Manchester you know it's a couple of condoms in it and some and lubrication um and I thought great you know I don't have to have that conversation because at 16 you are not equipped <laughs> to have that conversation particularly not with someone who's older than you and more worldly wise you know who's got a job and a fancy phone and you know that you look up to so um, I was like great but he pulled he only took out the lubrication and put the condoms to one side. And I actually stopped him and I remember saying, you know, maybe we should use them because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't stupid. I knew what, I knew what sexually transmitted infections were and but he just said to me that he'd been tested. You know, their full full bill of um uh, full clean bill of sexual health. And you know, I trusted him because he was he was older than me and he was wiser. And so so yeah I trusted his his judgment and and that was you know the moment really there right there and then that changed my life. I mean we I, I say to people it, it, it there wasn't really fireworks that full that first time because if anyone <laughs> any gay man will tell you it takes a bit of work to get <laughs> pleasure out of gay sex. So you know but we we like I say it was a summer romance we we had sex numerous times and it became more it became more and more pleasurable and enjoyable and and then if we fast forward a little bit, I um, I was on holiday with my parents, um, my last holiday with my parents and my little sister in Menorca, and I got really, really sick. So that was the same summer. Um, and I started to, I was vomiting and I had diarrhoea at the same time, which is not pleasant in 40 degree heat, in a heat wave in Menorca. Um, and when we came home, my mum took me to the emergency doctors and they said it was a waterborne virus, as you might sort of expect from, you know, maybe from some dodgy food or from, from you know, ice um, on holiday. And it sort of passed. That sort of I was, I, was very, I was very ill, I lost over a stone, but it, that kind of passed and I started college and I was on to new things. And I I'd, 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 I'd ended it with this guy because my parents had found out and I'd come out as gay and we'd had that conversation um, I was onto new things anyway, you know, I, I think I realised he probably was too old for me and I was going to college. We, we were from very different worlds, really. And, and it was then that um, something just niggling was, was niggling at me. I was still not very well. I had this cough. I was like autumn, winter cold coming in. I had not really got better. I look at pictures of myself and my skin was quite grey, like I had a, a sickly look. And I'd lost all this weight, and and then I started to get uh, symptoms downstairs. So I was getting uh, a, a green discharge, which any teenage boy does not <laughs> does not want. And and that was the moment that I, I knew I how to do something about that. So I took myself to the the uh, the GUM clinic, as they used to be called. They don't really call them that anymore. Um, <laughs> up at Stepping Hill Hospital um, in Stockport, um, and I was offered all the tests. But at that time, HIV was um, uh, uh, was offered separate to all the other range of tests. So it was an opt-in test. So they were like, do you want this test? And obviously, when they make such a big thing of it being a separate deal, and, you know, when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, you know, HIV and AIDS, and, the, uh, and knew what that was, you know, I just said no to that. I said, I don't want that test. I don't, I've not got that. I'm, I mean... seems ridiculous to me now but at the time you know I was going you know I'm I'm from Cheadle like boys from Cheadle don't get HIV head boy you know straight A head boys don't get HIV it it was the 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 mental gymnastics that I did to convince myself that I didn't have it were quite quite startling but the the doctors and the the nurses at the clinic you know saw the telltale signs my glands were were swollen and there's different kind of tests that they were doing and and, and they just gently kept bringing me back for a different reason and just gently saying, you know, we should try and rule this out. We should make sure it's, you know, uh, and then you can rest easy. And eventually I, I conceded and I said, yes, I'll have the test. And I did. So I had the test and I found out two weeks before my 17th birthday um, that I was HIV positive. And that's, <laughs> that's the moment when wa- my world completely changed. And although HIV is a, um, even at that point, a, a treatable condition, um, HIV medication had only been around for about seven years and was you know still improving, and there was still lots of side effects. And it was a very heavy diagnosis. It was still a life-limiting condition at that point. Um, and so I came home to my family home, and I came into the house, and I could have gone and told my parents, but instead I went upstairs and I lined up some paracetamol and I thought, oh, this is my way out. Um, I mean, I don't think... A sort of joke here, the dark humour, that I don't think I was ever going to do it. I think it was just a bit of a drama queen. I'd watched too many episodes of, like, Grange Hill, you know what I mean, or, like, Hollyoaks. But, um, but yeah, and that was the moment, really, that, that that's another moment where something shifted because that was the moment I decided to just box it up and just get on with things. And I did. I got on with things. I went to university. I travelled the world. I did everything that I wanted to do, I, you know and then if we fast forward again to 2017 15 years later that's where my life is in a very different place and i'm um really i'm in a really bad relationship very toxic abusive relationship actually um and um i'm really heavily reliant on drugs and alcohol to get me through the week and then i realise that actually yes i've also been coping in in less than ideal ways with this you know there was bulimia in my early 20s and a whole range a whole pattern of things that i realized at that point as a slightly older man looking back i'd not dealt with this very well um and so that was the turning point and that's when i went on this journey to tell my family um and then go from telling no one to telling the world and i actually I really did go from telling no one to telling the world because
0: yeah, was when no one are we talking you didn't tell a single person back then
1: um well I, you know i i there were people that knew you know i was in relationships with people they knew um I had some close friends knew that i was hiv positive um but it was really my family and and it wasn't something that i spoke about in a very, in a casual conversation or on a casual basis or i mean, there was very much a protect a protecting of that information and where that information went and a fear about where that information would go um but no I, I wasn't completely um uh, on my own in terms of dealing with that but um but yeah
0: to go back to that initial stage and in that time where as you said when, when you got the diagnosis and you were of course so young there's something that there, it seems like your instinct was, I'm gonna try and deal with this by myself and I'm not gonna tell my family. Um, are you able to share a little bit more about what was going on for you at that moment and during that time period where you, what, yeah, what was happening within you that felt that need to respond in that way, do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I just come out as gay. I, I remember being at school, yeah, I think in about year nine, and you know lgbtq inclusive sex education was relatively non-existent but we did watch in 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 pshe we did watch a film about hiv um and it was in fact it was the first time i'd seen another gay man or someone like me reflected back on screen i'd never experienced it, it was the first time i'd heard someone even say that they were gay it was this documentary about this guy but he he had he had hiv and it was wildly out of date and he was dying from aids and I remember the the 27 pairs of eyes behind me burning into the back of my neck, into the back of my head, going, that's who you are and that's your fate. And that really powerful moment, that formative moment where I should have been going, this is who I am. This There are people out there like me, I can be happy and have a relationship and you know, be joyful in who I am as a gay man. And it was the total opposite. So I think at that point when when I, when I the prophecy came true, in a sense, I got HIV, it was a double, a really powerful, there was already the sort of going through the internalised homophobia and the shame of being gay, which we have to work through, you know, work to pride, which is why we celebrate with pride and we have pride celebrations. But then this other layer on top of that, and I just think that really just shut me down in a way that was very, very powerful. And I just think, I think there's a thing around talking about it made it bigger. So actually talking about it meant I had to I had to face up to some of the things that had happened. And, you know, now I talk about it more openly and I've made the show and I look back and I go, actually, that relationship was problematic. And maybe at the time I knew that as well. And maybe my parents knew that as well. And maybe there was a lot of shame around how that was handled. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe I wasn't. I felt like they had let me down in some way, that they had not given me the tools to do that or society had let me down i should have been dating the deputy head boy (laughs) i should have lived in a world where i was dating someone my own age not where i had to meet someone on a bench and i think there was all that shame into link in playing into that so so yeah it was it was easier. it's easier to just get on with things isn't it it's easier it's so much easier
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and I guess when you say talking about made it bigger do you could make it bigger do you mean you had a fear that it would make it yeah it would make it bigger or more real or expand if you were talking about it is that what you meant by that yeah
1: it makes it it makes it real talking it and, and saying it to somebody makes it real and also I, I I I didn't want to I didn't want my life to be defined by that tragedy in inverted commas if you want to call it that you know, I, you know I, I watched like the musical Rent, and just like I'm not going to a HIV support service if we all sit around in a circle and talk about how bad our lives are. Do you know what I mean, it was like I'm a young gay man. I want to go out and live my life, and and I kind of did. I just led this du- this duality that actually on the surface, out you know out and about, loud and proud, you know really engaged in my community and activism, and and then and then behind closed doors like this real shame I say drowning in shame and that that you know the coping mechanisms to deal with that creep in over and over time
0: and it sounds like perhaps they built up over time as well uh they...
1: yeah definitely compounded um and you know it, it, it I I talk about this moment in 20s or these a collection of moments leading up to 2017, when I made the decision to to change everything, it was like um, I always thought like a, a mental breakdown would be like a car crash, but you know your life would like fall apart, and it was, but it was in slow motion, and it happened over 15 years, and bit by bit I could feel parts of my life falling away from me. It was like a, like a film, you know, where you can see the car spinning round, you can see the actor's face, you know, and the and and you know there was there was things like my career was stagnating and. I was, you know, falling into these bad habits and these coping mechanisms and, and uh and becoming more and more sort of distance from my family emotionally because of that uh, this secret. So so yeah, over over time, definitely that secrecy compounded that shame and that sense of shame.
0: And yeah, would you so how did you sort of pretend you were totally fine?
1: <laughs> um so I think I used to do this thing, where I'm I'm quite a practical person. I'm, I'm a sort of I'm a natural leader. You know, I work in in, in creative environments, and I'm often like a, a, a director or in that environment or leading a team. And, you know, and so those things kind of gave me purpose, so I could throw myself into these projects. I always say, you know, I, I in my show I say I overcompensated by trying to be perfect to everything, like, right? and I really. You know, unless it was perfect, that was not good enough for me. So there was this, uh, there was this overcompensation. But also, what I would do is I would work to a point where psychologically I couldn't do any more. And then behind closed doors, I would punish myself or I would do something that let that off. So I mean, it's very base level. I'd be like, I'm having a, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to sit and watch a film and make me cry. That's at, like it's most kind of like. Innocent level and go. This is my way of getting it all out. I'm going to watch this film and cry and eat some chocolate. And its most extreme level, it would be, you know, like maybe like a three day drug binge, and not know it and 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 anonymous sex and all these things and and abusing my body in a way. And I would I would tell myself that was that was the way I could cleanse it because after that there'd be uh, th- that would be like rock bottom and then you could only feel better after that. So there was this cycle of going, I can just hit this rock bottom again and then that's fine, I rebuild and go up to this place. But most people didn't see that. Most people didn't know that was going on. That was kept very, very secret.
0: Did you have an awareness that you were burying what was really going on or were you not, were you almost lying to yourself about what, what you were doing there, do you think?
1: I, I think there were, I think the more, the more I did it, maybe it's hard. That's a hard question to answer because I've, I've had a lot of therapy now, <laughs> and I've done a lot of work on this. And I've looked back and gone, "Oh my gosh, I, you know, I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's not just related from the diagnosis. That's some other things in my life as well." And now I look back and go, "Oh, you know, you were suffering from that thing, and these things were the the mechanism that helps you cope with that." I think in my younger years i didn't understand that as much i think as um, you know age and experience has come into it i understand that actually that there is a we talk about the fuck it button with my, my my therapist like we talk about why do i have this desire to press that um and what is it that drives me to want to press that um and what do i achieve by pressing that what is it is it giving me so I think there is very much an awareness now but that doesn't mean to say that it that that you know life is really simple like those desires or those darker things aren't bubbling under the surface they I would say they still they still exist in orbit around me because of the things that I've been through and that takes constant um monitoring It sounds very clinical but it does it takes constant being um in tune with yourself to understand because any any small stress in life can instantly take you back to that and you you may know that from your own experiences uh, a small stress that someone might go that's an easy thing to cope with but actually your brain doesn't work in a linear way if you have an emotional response to something that in your neural pathways may have an um, that may be triggered the, or connected to another trigger that was from something that happened to you in the past and you feel the same thing and your world crumbles so So yeah, but this, but but nowadays, much more in tune with it than I used to be.
0: And then you, when was that moment, so to speak, when you realised that the, you were running, escaping and avoiding this, Um, was there a, was there a turning point where everything changed?
1: Well, when I do, like, radio and TV interviews and stuff, I always give a real simple packaged-up version, which is I I, um, I caught myself two days after a house party still awake, you know, in the mirror, and I just saw myself and I just looked awful. You know, I just didn't... I didn't look healthy. I didn't like who I was. I was in this really... I was in this very abusive relationship um, and this codependent relationship, and my career was very much had stagnated and i always say that was the moment that i realized but i i think for a long time i think i knew that 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 there was a problem and in fact when i go back to when i started that previous relationship which lasted about five years even at the start of that relationship there were red flags um from that person's own personal traumas and past and there were the behavioral red flags that I knew were there and yet I still just kind of went with it. It was like, it was almost like it was easier to say yes to that than to actually have some self-respect for myself and say no. Um, So, so yeah, there was a long period, I think, where I when knew this was happening and was desperately trying to keep... I guess if you the, to have an analogy, like a bucket with just like a leak and you try and, f- you try and cover one leak and then it springs another and then another and then another and then another. And I guess 2017 was probably the point where there was more than 10 leaks and I didn't have 10 holes and I didn't have enough fingers <laughs> to, to stop the leaks then. And that was the moment that everything's kind of fell out, spilled over.
0: Um, that's a brilliant analogy. And I think a lot of people will relate to that. Um, and I also think people maybe who are in that experience will be able to visualize that, and maybe that can also be helpful as well. So thank you for that. Um something I related to as well, what you said earlier, was around not going to support groups, not letting it define you. But like with me, this this experience that f- for a long time you hid from has actually become it doesn't, our experiences don't define us, but they've become a really key part of our work. Um what ha- what was that shift or journey like for you and how did you get to that point from complete avoidance to speaking about it to to everyone
1: yeah, yeah. I mean I think I when I made the show in <laughs> in 2018 I had no idea that I would be performing it you know a hundred times to thousands of people you know sitting on The BBC Breakfast couch and talking about you know doing all these incredible things and I'm so honoured and to have this platform it's a real privilege. I think one of the things I said to myself was that I had to speak this truth into the universe because I had denied it for so long, and for so long it had controlled me. And there's something around stigma and shame um, that when I talk about internalized stigma it's quite hard for people to get and understand that. And, you know, and it's it's transferable to anything. It's transferable to the stigma of, you know, grieving or the stigma of, of anything really. And, and I, I realised in 2017 that I had internalised the narrative so much that being HIV positive was something to be ashamed of. Like, it's a virus, so like, why, is it, why am I ashamed of it? But there is a narrative because it's probably one of the world's most stigmatised illnesses, you know, the fear around it, because it originally in the 1980s you know, and early 90s, it killed 100% of people, very, very rare that you, people survived. So you can understand the fear and it's linked to sex. So it's linked to a sense of morality. But I I'd, I'd just internalised all that. And you live, you walk around as that internalised version of that stigma. And that, that I realised that I was ashamed. I was genuinely ashamed of it and I had to do something to change that so the journey of going, doing the opposite was really important to me because I had to keep saying each day tell myself a different story the new story is is that I'm not ashamed of it in fact I'm proud of who I am the the experience that I've been through have shaped me but they don't define me and change that narrative and and it's it's a slow process. you have to do it day in day out. and I remember I made this when I did the show for the first time in 2018 and with um, I'd done it for four shows it, I'd done an amazing reception this I'd, I'd got messages from all over the world from news articles and stuff and it was really quite overwhelming. and then the, the that the week after I went to get my hair done. At the barbers, and it was like quite a ma- like it's quite a match environment. The barbers, and as a gay man, you do always feel the most comfortable. They're not, you know, they're nice guys, but we don't have much in common. You talk about the footy or whatever, and and I remember he asked me what I did, and I had this moment of absolute terror. That drop where I talk about in your chest, where the anxiety drops, and like everything kicks in, the sweating. And I went, I have to tell it because I can't sit on the breakfast couch with Charlie and Nago and say, yeah, I'm loud and proud with HIV and everyone should live openly and proudly with it. And then not say it here. That's the cold face of the activism. That's where it really matters. But that was the harder bit. That was harder to do than standing on stage in a spotlight in front of hundreds of people and doing a show. And that is, that's I say, you know, day to day, people who live... With a stigmatized illness or you know with a stigmatized mental health condition or whatever the real the real heroes are the people that day-to-day live with that and have no shame and work through that shame and talk about it to others because that's that's the hard bit that's the real hard bit
0: i i hadn't thought about it like that before but i've published this book about um yeah my experience of my boyfriend dying by suicide and i'm just thinking about how many people i meet. And they say, "What's your book about?" And I stumble, and I say, "Oh, it's grief." Uh, and and I hadn't thought about that before, but I'm, I'm definitely going to think about that more. But yeah, that that it's that day to day is actually harder than the performing element of it.
1: Yeah, I think I think because you when you're in the in the writer mode, or you know, or the 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 promotion mode of of the book, you're you are a, a performed version of yourself, you know, and that's something that I've as a performer of my own story I've really it's really it's quite hard you have to grapple with what's who's me and who's not you know and 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 we have to as people that talk about it we have to understand that what that's doing in our psychology um but yeah absolutely it is so much easier to to stand on the stage in front of people or you know do a pitch to someone and say this is my book or this is my play and then actually when yeah, when you're just having a chat in the pub about it to actually bring it up because it feels there is a, it's that shame bubbles up. I don't want to burden you with this thing that is, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer in this moment when we're having, you know, <laughs> having a drink or, you know, a party or whatever. But actually, you know, we should be able to just say those things really openly. But that's that's where it's, for me, it's the, that's the, the sweet spot. If you can get to the point where that's easy, and I'm still working on that, I think that's that's the holy grail.
0: Yeah, I definitely need to work on that. And you've actually really, really uh, blown my mind and opened my eyes. I'm just thinking about, yeah, I I thought I'd got this. I'm talking about shame, talking about my shame. But you're right, when I'm put in that moment, it's about 50-50. It's a slight judgment call based on the people, which maybe is unfair. Maybe that's a bit unfair in itself as well. Like I kind of presume some people can't handle it. But all these stories don't want to be a Debbie Downer. They can't handle it. I think that's the shame talking to keep you silent. And ultimately, it's the silence that festers it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And people with HIV, you know, I, I've got lots, I know lots of people who live with HIV and we often, we talk about what that feels like. And and even in moments when we're talking to doctors or healthcare professionals, and you every time we say it, we're reminded of that moment. And, you know, when, when I and I mentioned before, when you talk about the neural pathways and, and our brains are not, and our, our limbic systems, our emotional network and And how our bodies work and not linear so sometimes saying it feels okay and it's fine because it's it's come from an area that's processed it's a memory it's something that is easy because if this thing happened but i'm safe in the present now i know i'm safe and i'm happy and healthy but other times it can really take you by surprise and you say that thing and everything comes flooding back and there's always that fear i think of that of kind of being taken off guard or losing control or being in a situation where you have to push that down and suppress that and that's that's the thing if you live with something that you talk about in the way that we both do that's the, the line that you have to walk I think as well
0: and there's that other something else that I related to around it's a way of controlling it controlling the narrative but as you've just said we actually can't fully do that we never that will never be done um <sighs> And actually, I personally found just accepting, like, I'll never be fine about this. Actually very healing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally get that. That sort of, there's this idea that you want, that there's a a full stop. Like there's a full stop at the end of grief or there's a full stop at the end of a a trauma that you go through. And there isn't, there's just a new sense of normal. And that's a different thing. And that's quite a difficult thing for people to get their heads around. And, And people ask me about my, you know, what happened to me when i was younger and you know going back and uh, and thinking about that and do you know do i ever feel angry about what happened to me was i groomed you know all these questions and i go it was 18 years ago I, pro- I just don't have the answers like yes there are memories that i can't quite figure the end of you know where there's alcohol involved or great i just don't know but I could torture myself day in, day out thinking about those things, or I could go, that thing happened to me in the past. You know, I don't have any resentment around contracting HIV because all it would mean is that I'm HIV positive and angry. <laughs> like, I'd rather be HIV positive and happy. So I can't change those things. What I can do is work on being safe and content in the present and in the future. And that's all that you can, you can kind of do for yourself, I guess.
0: Absolutely. And... Thank you for sharing that story with us today. Really appreciate it. And I'm sure there's so much in there that will help a lot of people to hear it. So thank you.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure.
0: We always ask this at the end of the show. Um, Pretending to be fine is something that it is something we do on a daily basis. I, I've now noticed I do it all the time since <laughs> asking this question, yeah. and, I'm, and I've also noticed how much everyone just goes, "Yeah, I'm totally fine." Um, but uh, is, there, is there a small way you've done that recently?
1: Uh, but th- there's a big way I've done that recently. Um, I because I'm talking about the show, so I you know I'm I'm in this process of it's quite an intense thing to perform your own story. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of people who share with you after my show as well. And that's either online or in person. And we have post-show discussions and people share their own stories. And there's a lot to carry. And, you know, for for a good few months now, I've been carrying all that. Um, and then the show finished. And then it's just like, you know, all the hype's gone, you know, all the all the hard work is ended. So last week was really hard and I knew it was going to be hard. Um, and I I could feel... I talk about this thing having a shame hangover as a performer who tells my own story and I've got friends who tell their own stories and they say the same thing and this overwhelming feeling feeling that you've overshared who are you to have this platform all these kind of negative voices circling and they all come in and last week they came in very very heavy like I knew they would and I could feel I could feel my old triggers pulling I I want to press the fuck it button like I want to call a dealer I want to do this thing I want to do this in private so no one knows and I will do those and and, and it was it was a big thing but I, I was ready for it this time and I remember I was having I was on the phone to my boyfriend and he said how are you doing and I, I went I'm fine and then I just stopped myself went I'm not and I just said to him I'm not fine I just said this last this week's really hard and we talked about it and then after it do you know what I did feel fine (laughs) because I shared it and it was so simple. It was so simple. But even like you say, we have to remind ourselves. We're we're still, even though we've done these things and people, you know, people say to me, like, what you do is incredible and amazing, inspiring, all those things. And at the end of the day, I'm still a human and I'm still just figuring it out. And actually, I still have to remind myself to just, if I'm not feeling okay to say it, it's all right. So, yes, it was a big one um last week and it's starting to ease off the the swim this morning definitely helped
0: (laughs) it's uh, thank you for sharing it's so powerful that the the simplicity of talking i'm not saying i'm not fine so that is a perfect perfect example to end on so thank you so much thank you Thank you for listening to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, hosted by me, Tiffany Philippou. Anna Cordurado is the executive producer. Editing and mixing is by Chris Bannister. And you may recognize us because we've also got another show called Is This Working? So you can check that out too. And if you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review as that really helps more people find the show too. Thank you.